First uh, Timothy chapter 6, Paul's writing by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And notice he said in verse 12, he said, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. Notice he said faith is a fight. Now, let's examine what he means by that. Was it a fight to get saved? There are, there are some that may have struggled with the idea or the, the, you know, to, to surrender themselves to the Lord or something like that. But notice the last part of this verse says that these people have already professed a good profession before many witnesses. In other words, everybody knows they're saved. Paul's writing to Timothy. He knows Timothy's saved. This same thing would be true. The same principle would be true for us. He's not saying, Timothy, fight so you can finally get into heaven. Lay hold on eternal life doesn't have anything to do with being saved. That's a byproduct of salvation. But he's talking about laying hold of eternal life, laying hold of the things that Jesus purchased for you to have. But he's already in the kingdom of God. Timothy's a minister. He's called and ordained to be a minister. So when Paul writes this to Timothy, he's not saying fight the good fight of faith so that you can finally make it to heaven. That's not the fight he's talking about. He's talking about the fight that it takes with us, within ourselves, and our, the resistance that we have to, to, uh, uh, to, to make against the devil and the way the devil operates against us so that we can lay hold on the things that God has provided for us through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now notice he says, fight the good fight of faith. What kind of fight is he talking about? Well, if it's a fight of, uh, against sickness, then he's saying fight the good fight of sickness, uh, fight the good fight of faith against sickness to receive healing. So that you lay hold of the blessing of healing that Jesus provided for you when he made this sacrifice for eternal life. See, this word life is the word zoe. It means everything that Jesus purchased for us. So notice that there is a fight of faith. Well, if there's a good fight of faith, then that means a good fight of faith would be one you win, isn't it? I don't know of any fights that I've ever lost that I thought were good. Isn't that true? So if he says, fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life, there's a possibility for you not to lay hold on eternal life or whatever the promise is you're trying to receive. Well, what's going to make the difference? What makes the difference is whether or not you fight the good fight. In other words, whether or not you fight effectively and fight a winning fight. You can fight a losing fight of faith and fail to receive whatever part of eternal life, whatever part that Jesus has already secured for us through his sacrifice and resurrection It depends on you. It doesn't depend on God. Notice he didn't say pray and do your best and hope that God makes it work. No, it's up to the individual. Fight the good fight of faith. So whatever part of the blessings of God, whether it's healing, whether it's prosperity, whether it's peace, whatever it is, Jesus provided a total sacrifice or a total redemption for us to redeem us from every part of the curse of law, every part of the authority of darkness, whatever part of the, the, uh, uh, the blessings of God or the things that Jesus has overturned, and destroy it in the devil's work that you need to receive, it comes down to you fighting a good fight. And that good fight is the fight of faith. Notice that's the only fight that the Bible tells us to fight. It's a good fight of faith. Now, how do we fight effectively? I mean, if the difference in us receiving or not receiving what Jesus has already paid for, so it's not a matter of the will of God. God's will was that Jesus paid the price for everybody, and he did. And then he made a way for you and I to receive everything that Jesus paid for. That means of receiving is, the, is faith. The principle whereby we receive is faith. James 1 says, don't let any man that's in unbelief, any man that wavers or staggers in unbelief, don't let him think that he'll receive anything from God. 
nor should he expect to. So faith is the key whereby we receive from God. It's the principle, it's the successful and the only way for us to receive from God. And it comes down to us fighting effectively. But notice there is a fight. Now, turn, what is that fight? Let's see what the Bible says about what this fight is or how we can fight effectively so that we can receive. Turn back with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, Jesus has cursed the fig tree and comes by the next morning. The disciples draw his attention to it. Peter calls to remembrance and said, Master, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto them, verse 22, Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God. Other translations say have the faith of God. One translation says have the God kind of faith. Well, that fits because what other kind of faith would God have except the God kind of faith? He's certainly not going to have man's kind of faith. The only kind of faith God has is the God kind of faith. It's the God kind of faith that every person that's been born again receives a measure of. So Jesus says, have the God kind of faith. So he's telling them to do something. He's not saying God had some special plan and purpose in this, and that's what happened. He's not saying that, that he has some special place with God as the Son of God here on the earth, and that's why it happened, because he has special power. No, he directs them to have the same faith that he used to get miraculous results overnight. So he says, have the God kind of faith. And then he explains what it is in verse 23. For whosoever shall say, so the God kind of faith first and foremost has something to do with the words of your mouth. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus fight the good fight of faith overnight from the time the day before when he cursed the fig tree to the next morning when it was dried up from the roots? Obviously so. Obviously so. What does Jesus tell us then in his explanation of the fight of faith that he's just experienced, that he's just encountered and won? What does he tell us is the key to fighting the good kind of faith or the good fight of faith? Well, the only stipulation he makes in here is then shall not doubt in his heart. And shall not doubt in his heart. I'm taking some things for granted. I'm taking for granted that the words were spoken from your heart, from the the heart of the individual according to what they desired to receive, what they desired the result to be. But the only stipulation that he makes, the only thing after that faith is first and, and initially expressed, is to not doubt in your heart. That's the only stipulation, that's the only criteria that he establishes here. And shall not doubt in his heart. Now he goes through in, in verses 24 and 25 and 26 and gives a little bit more explanation. But if we take just the summary, Jesus has one shot to explain what the fight of faith is, how to receive from God, how to make things change through the action of faith. It's got to be the same thing Paul's talking to Timothy about fighting the good fight of faith. It's got to be. The Holy Ghost is not going to be talking about two different things related to the same subject. He's not going to describe it in one way in Mark chapter 11 and a different way in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 unless he's doing it for clarification. So he's talking about the same thing. The only stipulation Jesus makes is shall not doubt in his heart. Shall not doubt in his heart. Shall not doubt in his heart, but instead believes in his heart. Shall not doubt in his heart. Now turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul uses a little different terminology here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, Let's read verses 17 and 18. Paul said, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. 
Now, notice what he's saying. He's talking about the trials and the, the trouble that the, the church at Corinth is uh, experiencing at that point in time. And he's telling them to hang tough, telling them to be, to be steady, don't be moved, don't be upset because the world is rising up against you and the devil's trying to throw things in your way. And he says, he calls it light affliction to begin with. An affliction is a test trial or adversity. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, in other words, it's temporary. Thank God it's temporary which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, if we just stop there, which most of the church does, if we just stop there, we'd say that we've been, we would be able to establish a doctrine. And that doctrine is God uses trouble to teach us and perfect us. And we would have to conclude, if we stopped at the end of verse 17, we'd have to conclude that all trouble is going to bring to us some spiritual benefit. But that verse 18 tells us that's not so. Let's read verse 17 again. Then we'll read all the way through the end of verse 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while. Everybody say while. In other words, here's the criteria. Here's the condition whereby the trouble that you're in will provide a spiritual benefit to you. What's called an eternal weight of glory. I don't know about you, but I want to grow and develop spiritually. I don't want to just receive my healing. I don't want to just receive prosperity. I, just don't, I don't want just the natural and the earthly things that Jesus provided for me. Don't get me wrong. I want those too. But I want to grow and mature spiritually. I want to grow past some tests and some trials that I've experienced in my life. I don't want to keep going through the same thing over and over again. Do you? If there's a lesson to learn in something that the, that the devil brings against me, an attack that the devil brings against me, then I want to learn what it is. And, and the only thing that the Bible talks about learning from is the word. So I want to use the word effectively so that I can o- overcome this so that I won't have this trouble next time. It's kind of like school. If you don't pass the test, you have to take it again. Well, God's not the one bringing the test, but the devil sure will test you. So notice it says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding weight of glory while. Here's the condition. To bring a spiritual benefit to your life. While we look not. At the things which are seen. But at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. That word temporal means subject to change. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Now let me back this out. And, and, uh, and summarize this. And try to simplify it a little bit. And read these two verses again. For our light affliction. Whatever trouble you're going through which is but for a moment, works for us a spiritual benefit, spiritual growth, spiritual development, while we look at unseen things instead of the things that are around us in this natural realm. Because the things that are around us in this natural realm are subject to change, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So notice it's not the trouble that perfects you. It's learning to deal with the trouble effectively according to the word. Or we might just say it this way. It's learning to fight the good fight of faith which will bring you a spiritual benefit. Now this fighting the good fight of faith is the way you lay hold of them to turn life. Fighting the good fight of faith is the way you lay hold of them the answer to whatever the trouble is related to. If the trouble is healing, if the trouble is sickness, then fighting the good fight of faith will lay hold on healing. 
So what is Paul saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18? He's saying the key to laying hold on healing, if that's the trouble, the area of trouble or affliction that you're experiencing, the key to laying hold on healing is to look at the unseen things. The key to making it benefit, bringing you a spiritual benefit, the key to receiving is to fight the good fight of faith, and that's conditioned on what you look at. Looking at unseen things. Now notice the way James said it in James chapter 1. Turn with me over to James chapter 1. I want you to see this. Again, James is talking about the same thing. He's talking about going through trouble. So even though he uses different terminology, he's got to be talking about the same thing. James chapter 1 verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. This word temptation means test, trial, or affliction. Adversity, trouble. So he's telling you right off the bat, here's what to do when you're in trouble. Count it all joy. Now, there's got to be some kind of spiritual application here because nobody thinks it is joy or joyful when you're going through trouble. So he's talking about how to handle trouble spiritually then. He has to be, right? Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. The trying of your faith worketh patience. Now, if you put that together with what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, they're exactly the same. They're talking about exactly the same subject, exactly the same thing, but they say it in different ways. Paul said, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding weight of glory while we look at the right things, which are unseen things. James says that we can count it all joy when we're in the middle of trouble knowing that the trying of our faith works patience. So what works patience? Looking at the unseen things. It's not just the trial. It's not just the trial in James' situation or to the people James is writing to any more than the people that Paul is writing to in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's not the trouble that's going to perfect you. It's not the trouble that's going to teach you. It's learning to handle the trouble spiritually or according to the word's instruction that's what will benefit you and james will tell you that it'll even bring you into victory he said knowing this count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or trouble test trials or afflictions knowing this that the trying of your faith worketh patience but let patience have her perfect work let patience have her perfect or complete work that you may be perfect and entire Wanting or lacking nothing. Wanting nothing. So he's saying if you fight the good fight of faith. Again we're trying to put all these together. Fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life. Jesus said. Whosoever shall say unto the mountain. Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart. Paul said. Our light affliction which is just for a moment. Works for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. While we look at things that are not seen. And now James is saying, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, test trials, or troubles. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But if you let patience have a perfect work, you'll be complete, wanting or lacking nothing. In other words, the trouble will be ended with the blessings of God. You'll receive the blessings of God to overcome the trouble that the devil stirred up against you. So what is the fight of faith? Letting patience have a perfect work. What is the fight of faith? Looking at the unseen things. Are you out there? I want you to realize something, folks. Everything about this, everything about the devil's attack is to get you 
to look at something other than the answer. To get you to look at something other than the answer. Turn back with me to Mark chapter 4. Let me show you this to you. Let me prove it to you. Mark chapter 4. Jesus is telling the story. The parable of the sower sowing the word. And the way he describes this. Indicates to us that this is the key to everything. I'm going to take a minute and just read the whole thing. And beginning in verse 3. Jesus taught them uh, by parables. Verse 3, hearken, there went out a sower, a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And the other fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some 30 and some 60 and some 100. And he said unto them, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. By the way, the word hear in the Greek means to give attention to. It doesn't mean to listen. He's not talking about the physical act of hearing. It means to give your attention to something. Let him that has ears to hear, to give attention to, let him hear. In other words, Giving your attention to something comes by an act of your will, not just casually. If you have ears to hear, then you'll give your attention to something. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked him of the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. That seeing you may see and not perceive. And hearing they may hear and not understand lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Verse 13, and he said unto them, know ye not this parable? He just said in verse 11 that unto them it's given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Mystery doesn't mean a mystery like we think of a mystery novel or something like that. Mystery means something that only those that are initiated into a special group will know. You go into to masons and, and fraternities and sororities and stuff like that, they have mysteries. Greek clubs were famous for mysteries. Greek fraternities and social uh, clubs, social groups were known for mysteries. What does that mean? It means things that only those that are part of the club know. There's supposed to be a great penalty for revealing the mysteries of the association to somebody outside the group. Well, that's what Jesus is talking about here when he's talking about mysteries. He's saying the mysteries are the ones only are known by only those that are a part of the kingdom of God. That's why verse 12 is in there. These things are done in parables so that hearing they may hear and not understand. If they're not going to be part of us, Jesus didn't even want them to know how it worked. The mysteries of the kingdom of God are not for the unsaved. They're for the believers. Why? Well, James, or, I'm sorry, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He said, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them for their foolishness unto him. The unsaved can't know the things of God. It's impossible for the unsaved to be able to know the mysteries of God. But Jesus is saying it belongs to the children. Know you not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? Notice what Jesus is telling them. He's saying this parable, understanding the principles behind this parable, is the understanding to know everything about all the other parables and everything about how the kingdom of God works. You understand this, you'll know everything that you need to know about the kingdom of God and how it operates. 
That makes this pretty important, in my opinion. So he explains. The sower sowed the word. Now, how does a sower sow, a wor- sow words? Or how does the sower sow the word, meaning the word of God? He's speaking words. The sowing, the act of sowing is speaking. He's saying the speaker is speaking words. The words of God is what he's talking about. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. He's talking about people. Some people hear it casually. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Now, remember what Jesus said earlier. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Everything about, I'll give you a heads up on the, on the, the principle. Everything is about what you give your attention to. Four different types of ground, meaning four different types of people. And each one gives attention in a different way or a different measure. The only ones that produce fruit successfully are the ones that give full attention to it. So he said, these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness. They give immediate attention to it. But they have no root in themselves. And so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. The word offended means entrapped or snared. Immediately they are offended. Now what happens? What happens is they heard the word and they gave attention to it. Now how do you give attention to the word? You remember Proverbs chapter 4 verses 20 through 22? It says, my son, attend unto my words. That means give attention to something. My son, attend unto my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them, my words, not depart from before your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For their life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. So what is he saying? He's saying giving attention to the word is a number of things. First of all, continuing to listen. First and foremost, incline your ear to my sayings. Continue to listen. Why is that? Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, I'm going to interrupt the the parable here and the teaching for an experiment. Okay? I want to show you how God made you. Words create pictures. So we're going to run an experiment. Everybody willing to do the experiment with me? All right. Before we do, I've got to make sure everybody's mind's clear. So whatever you do, do not think of a pink elephant. Now, how many of you just saw a picture of a pink elephant? Everybody. That's the way it works. Words create pictures in us. Now, can I ask you a question? When you saw that picture of a pink elephant, where did you see it? Did you see it in the physical realm? Or did you see something unseen? You saw something unseen. Now, remember, we've already established that fighting a good fight of faith, at least a part of fighting the good fight of faith, is looking at the unseen things, not at the things which are seen, but looking at unseen things. How are we going to be able to look at unseen things? Because unseen things are created by words. That's why giving attention to the word of God is such a key element. Because the more you incline your ear to his sayings, the more you hear the word of God, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. The more you hear the word, the more it builds the picture of what the word says belongs to you on the inside of you. The clearer and clearer the unseen thing picture becomes. Now back to the story. 
These are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness. That means they give a little bit of attention to it. But they have no root in themselves. They don't keep up with it, in other words. Afterwards, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. What is the offense that happens? Remember, it means to entrap or to stumble. They stop saying it. They get diverted. Their attention gets diverted, and they're no longer looking at the word or the picture that the word creates. Now, what causes people to lose sight of the unseen things that the word creates a picture of? Jesus identified two things, affliction. The word affliction literally means, in this case, literally means pressure. Secondly, persecution. Persecution. Notice what the devil uses and what the purpose that he uses his stuff for. He uses pressure. That's usually something from the outside or persecution, people coming against you. For the entire purpose, for the sole purpose of diverting your attention away from the word. Getting you away from looking at unseen things. Getting you to look away from the picture that the word paints for you by getting you to look at something else. Either the picture that the pressure brings or the picture that the persecution brings. He's trying to get you to look at something other than the unseen picture. The picture within yourself. And again, it's not a physical thing. When you saw the picture of the pink elephant, you didn't see it in your brain. You saw it in your mind. There's a difference between the brain and the mind. The brain is just a physical component that the mind operates through. The mind is a part of the eternal part of man. The brain is not. Your brain doesn't disappear when you die. It's still inside your skull long after the spirit leaves the body. So it's not the brain that's the issue. It's the mind that works through the brain. So you're not seeing a picture with your head in the sense that it's your brain or the physical part of you. You see pictures from within you, the eternal part of you, literally part of your soul. That's why the Bible says be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be renewed from the inside. It's not your brain that needs the work. We can make some jokes here about that, but I want you to get the point. It's not the brain that needs the work. It's the mind that needs the work. Because your mind has been conditioned by the spirit of this world to see pictures that contradict what the Bible says belongs to you. To see pictures that contradict what the Bible says Jesus has accomplished for you. Those are the things that are involved in the renewing of the mind. It's changing the pictures. Are you with me? So these immediately received, these on stony ground, immediately received received the word with gladness. But they have no root in themselves and so endure but for a time. Now, no root, the, literally the word, the, the root word for root means moisture. They don't continue to the water the word. Paul said, I planted but Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, I preached the word to you the first time. That's like planting the seed. Well, how did Apollos water the word? By, by teaching the same word that Paul had preached. So no moisture has to do or no root system has to do with not giving attention to the word sufficiently or long enough to where the word takes root in your heart and the devil certainly wants to uproot it before it takes hold and how does he do that well with this type of ground he says through affliction to persecution how many times have you started believing god for something and then it seems like all hell breaks loose i've had so many people come and say pastor mike i never had this much trouble with the devil before i started trying to believe god Well, why do you think it works that way? Because the devil's trying to change the focus of your attention. 
It's all designed to get you attending to something else. The affliction and the persecution is to distract you. That's one meaning, actually, one literal meaning of the word persecution. It means distraction. He's trying to distract you from the image that the Word of God painted on the inside of you. The unseen picture that you're supposed to look at so that you can fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life and receive the answer to, your, to, to whatever you're believing for. Jesus goes on. He says in verse 18, And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. What does the devil use on these people? Distractions. The cares of this world, the lust or the desires for other things, tries to create a greater desire in somebody than their desire for the word, and the deceitfulness of riches. Now, can I ask you what deceitfulness of riches is? Only time I've ever seen anybody, had any experience with anybody being deceived by riches, it comes down to one of two things. And that is they either think riches is something that they need to pursue or they overestimate the importance of money in their lives. Now, I'm not saying that's the entirety of deceitfulness of riches, but that's the, that's the extent of my experience with it in dealing with people for almost 30 years pastoring the church. People get a wrong priority on either their need or the gaining of money. So what does that mean? That means the devil tries to distract you by making you care about other things in the world. The devil tries to distract you with money or regarding money. And the devil tries to distract you with desiring anything and everything else. We look at the word lust and most people attach a spiritual, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a sexual connotation to that. That's not what the word lust means. It just means a desire for something else. I've seen some people turn loose of the word because their desire to have popular, uh, be popular with their friends is greater than their desire for the word. Well, that's a lust for other things. But it all comes down to the same thing, and that is just different means, different methods of distracting you from giving attention to the word of God. And what happens then? Now, these people, this type of person goes further than the stony ground because it starts taking root. The word of God is attended to to such a degree that it begins to take root. It begins to be fruitful. And but, the, but then the devil steps up his efforts and tries to distract them to get their attention on other things. Whether it's through money or other stuff in the world, cares of the world and so forth. He gets their attention diverted to other things. And those other things choke the word of God. And therefore it stops it from being fruitful. But it would have been if they would kept their attention on the word. Finally, Jesus tells about the fourth type of ground. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it. Luke's, translation, or Luke's uh, uh, account of this, Luke chapter 8 says, and keep and, uh, what am I reading? Instead of saying and receive it, he says and keeps it. Well, what does it mean to keep it? What does it mean to receive it? My son, attend unto my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not depart from before your eyes and keep them in the midst of your heart. In other words, say it, hear it, and see it. These are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it or keep it, and bring forth fruit, some 60-fold or some 30-fold, some 60 and some 100-fold. Some 60, some, some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. He's saying it even then, even in good ground. Good ground will produce different measures of fruitfulness. 
Based on what? Based on the attention that you give to the word. Or in our definition for the subject that we're talking about tonight, based on the unseen pictures that you see. Now let me show you an example of this. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Let's start reading in verse uh, uh, better start in verse 22 to get the context. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray, and when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with the waves. For the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. The Bible says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. We know that Peter is walking on the water by faith. Because Jesus is going to reprimand him a little bit later because, of his, uh, because he doubts. So that means he started off in faith. What gave him faith to walk on the water? Well, the only thing that does bring faith, and that's the word of God. What word of God was spoken? Jesus said one thing, and that was come. Now, what happened when Jesus said come? Put yourself in his position. Let's take it apart. I want you to see this. What happened to Peter when Jesus said come? Peter saw himself walking on the water to Jesus. Because that's what words do. Words paint pictures. If I said to one of you, hey, come up here and bring me something. You'd see yourself getting up and coming before you ever took a step outside of your chair. It's what we do. We act on what we see ourselves doing. That's why so often when people meditate on stuff, that's the reason that they do it. Because they've seen themselves, they've schooled themselves, they've taught themselves to see themselves doing that exact thing. Most of the time, the spirit of the world would inspire us, direct us, dominate us to see ourselves failing rather than see ourselves succeeding. So when Peter was told to come by Jesus, and, and notice this Peter's initiation. Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come out there and do that too. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, Peter, you don't understand. I'm the son of God. You can't do this stuff. He says, come. There's not one thing except going to the cross that Jesus ever held back from the disciples and said, you can't do this. Jesus told his disciples, told James and John and their mother that they're not able to drink from the cup that I'm, that I'm going to drink from. That's the only thing that Jesus held back from his disciples in any way when he was here on the earth. Everything else, Jesus said, what I did, you can do too. So when Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come out there to you, and Jesus says, come. It immediately creates a picture in Peter, within Peter, that he acts on, steps out of the boat, and starts walking on the water to Jesus. But notice what changes. What changes 
is in verse 30. But when he saw the wind boisterous. In other words, he stopped seeing himself coming or walking to Jesus and started seeing the wind and the waves. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. Now, I want you to notice, faith has got to be expressed some way or another. Faith is expressed generally in, uh, from the Scripture. We know that faith is expressed either by word or by deed. Peter says nothing other than, if it's you, tell me to come out there with you. That's not faith. That's his desire. That's expressing his desire to come. But unless Jesus says come and gives him some basis to step out on the water with, he can't do it on his own. So Peter's faith is expressed by the fact that he acted on what Jesus said. Now, Peter doesn't change anything until he starts sinking and says, Lord, save me. So it's not like his confession was one thing to begin with and changed to another thing afterwards. But his action must have changed. Since it wasn't his confession that changed, then it must have been his action that changed. For example, it wasn't the wind or the waves that kept Peter from being successful in walking on the water. Peter started off walking on the water, and we already know there was a storm of wind. That's why they're toiling and rowing. They're having a hard time rowing the boat because of the wind and the waves. So when Peter first stepped out on the water, the wind was high and the waves were high. The wind was blowing strong and the waves were high. So it's not the wind and the waves that that's the obstacle. The wind and the waves had nothing to do with him walking on the water. He did walk successfully out toward Jesus with the wind blowing and the water the waves of the water being high. It's not the obstacle that the devil tells you is the problem that really is the problem. Well, why does the devil want, you, want Peter to see the wind and the waves? Because he's trying to change the picture on the inside of Peter. I would submit to you that Peter went from seeing himself walking on the water to seeing himself sinking in the water. And I would further submit to you that his action had to change because even if, even if the picture had changed and he started being afraid on the inside, if he had kept walking, kept acting on what Jesus said, which was the word come, there is no power of the devil that could have stopped him from getting to Jesus. Because faith will work in your heart, acting from your heart, even when there's doubt in your mind. So I submit that Peter's action had to change. In other words, the wind and the waves, what Peter saw in the wind and saw of the waves caused him to change his action because it changed the picture on the inside of him. And that's when he began to sink. Now, I would ask you this. How does somebody begin to sink? We read this casually and really don't think about what he's saying. It says he began to sink. What does begin to sink mean to you? It does not say that he dropped like a rock to the bottom of the sea. Begin to sink says to me that he began to lower down into the water. In other words, his faith left him by degrees. If he went from faith to walk on the water to absence of faith, no faith whatsoever, he would have dropped like a stone and Jesus would have had to go diving to find him. Wouldn't he? His faith left him by degrees. And that's the reason why the devil's trying to distract you. That's the reason why the devil wants to paint a picture. And he paints it again and again and again. It's not a matter of just showing you a picture that contradicts the word one time and that's it. He wants to show you again and again and again because he wants you to bite into. He wants you to buy into the picture 
a failure. He wants to buy, you to buy into the picture where you don't receive whatever it is you're trying to believe God for. Because that's the way he keeps you from laying hold of an eternal life. That's the way he wins the fight of faith. That's why Paul said the, the light affliction, which is but for a time, but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen, the wind and the waves in Peter's case, but at the things which are not seen. Peter walking on the water to Jesus. Keep your eyes on the success that the word says is yours. Keep your eyes on what the Bible says belongs to you, not on what the devil says is going to happen to you. So many times people say, well, yeah, Pastor Mike, I prayed, but I just feel like such and such. Do you realize you're quoting the devil when you say that? And so many times people, they think they're being sincere, but they're giving up and they're, they're taking a losing position in the fight of faith. They go to the father and they say, father, I just feel so bad about this. Do you realize that when you do that, you're quoting the devil to God Now, if you put it in those terms, nobody would, would uh, willingly do that. I mean, who wants to come and say, you know, Father, the devil told me this. Most people don't even stop and think about where did this thought come from. People don't stop to think about who am I quoting, who am I speaking after. That's why it's so important to say what the Bible says. It's not so important to know what the Bible says. The Bible says that the victory comes by saying what the Bible says. I can't tell you how many people have come to me and say, Pastor Mike, I don't understand why I don't receive my healing. I know that healing belongs to me. Well, that's great, but are you saying it? The Bible doesn't say you'll have what you know. The Bible says you'll have what you say. It's the action of speaking the word of God that makes the difference. It's the action of speaking the word of God that puts you over and brings you into victory. So what's the devil trying to do in Peter's case? He's trying to change the picture on the inside of him. Notice the devil doesn't stop and show up and walk physically next to Peter and say, you don't really think you can do this, do you? He doesn't identify himself. He just gets him looking at circumstances. What do the circumstances have to do with anything? They didn't keep him from walking on the water when he first stepped out of the boat. They're irrelevant. Circumstances are irrelevant. Please understand when the fight of faith is concerned, where you laying hold of the things that Jesus purchased for you, circumstances are irrelevant. Why? Because those are things that are seen and those are temporal things. Those are things that are subject to change. When he saw the wind boisterous, verse 30, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Now let me close with two verses of scripture. I want you to turn with me to Second uh, uh, Peter chapter 1 and First um, Corinthians chapter 10. Second Peter 1 or is it First Peter? Well, I'll find it. It's over there somewhere. Second Peter chapter 1, I want you to notice the first couple of verses. Peter writes to the church, identifies himself. 
identifies himself. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained life, precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to notice what he says next. He says, grace and peace, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Please notice that he's saying grace, which is the finished work of Jesus. Everything Jesus purchased for you, we could say everything that pertains to eternal life. Healing, blessing, prosperity, peace, everything Jesus provided for. He's writing to people that are already saved, writing to people that are of like precious faith. That's the same thing as Paul saying to Timothy. Everybody knows you're saved. You've made your profession of, of, uh, that Jesus is Lord before a great many witnesses. People know that. But still fight the good fight of faith to lay hold on eternal life. So he's saying the same thing. Peter's saying just about the same thing to these people he's writing to. He's saying grace and peace be multiplied to you. How does grace and peace come? In other words, how does the victory in your situation come? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus. It doesn't come through praying and begging God to do something for you. It comes through the knowledge of God. I would submit to you that Peter is talking about faith and using just different terminology to speak about it. Faith begins where the will of God is known. If you don't know that God has planned, has provided something for you, then there's no way you can have faith to receive it. Now notice he said, faith, grace and peace are multiplied through the knowledge of God and of Jesus my Lord. Why? According as his divine power has given, past tense, has given. Divine power means the resurrection power of Jesus. Has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him. Through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Whereby, for this cause, for this reason, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. That by these promises, by these scriptures in the word, you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, when he says partakers of the divine nature, he's not talking about getting saved. He's writing to people that are already saved. So when he's talking about divine nature, partakers of the divine nature, he's saying the word of God that brings you knowledge of God and knowledge of what Jesus has done for you. It's the word of God that brings you into this eternal life and all the blessings of eternal life that you can lay hold on like Paul told Timothy and notice he didn't say by these you'll automatically be partakers he said by these you might be partakers in other words it's up to you not done to God God's already given you everything well we know it's faith that receives from God and you can't receive from God without faith so it has to be faith in his word that makes you a partaker doesn't it and notice it all comes through the knowledge of God. Through the knowledge of God, that, not, that knowledge comes through his word. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll start reading in verse 3. Paul said, writing to the church, writing to people that are born again, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. In other words, he's saying we don't use natural weapons for a spiritual fight. Well, if we don't use natural weapons for a spiritual fight, what weapons do we use? Spiritual weapons. What are our spiritual weapons for? For the weapons of our warfare, verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or natural or human or physical, 
but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, to the defeating of Satan's uh, strongholds, Satan's defenses. To the defeating of Satan's defenses. Did I give you the wrong reference? Second Corinthians chapter 10. You got it? For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What are we supposed to use those weapons to do? How do we break through the devil's defenses? Verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, why is that important? Because it's through the knowledge of God that you lay hold on eternal life. It's the knowledge of God that comes through the reading of the word and the, the confessing of God's word. The placing of God's word and establishing God's word in your heart is the knowledge of God and knowledge of what Jesus has done for you that equips you to take hold of the things that God has already given to you. Healing, blessing, peace, prosperity, whatever. So what are these weapons for? These weapons are to defeat Satan's defenses, to defeat Satan's strongholds, the place where he's dug in, in your life and in your situation. What do they do? They're to cast down imaginations, that means pictures, in your mind. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Every contrary or contradicting thing in your life that contradicts or, or, or speaks against is in conflict with the word of God. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought Notice where the fight is. Notice where Satan's defenses are. Satan's defenses are in your thinking. Why are they in your thinking? Because he's busy building pictures on the inside of you. If you don't look at his pictures, if you don't buy into his pictures, you can receive the things that the Bible says instead. But so many of us, all of us, have to replace his pictures with the pictures that the Word of God paints for us. And folks, that is the process called the renewing of the mind. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. What is the obedience of Christ? Well, the Bible says Jesus is the word made flesh. So the obedience of Christ would be obedience to the word. In other words, he's saying you should take every thought captive and make sure it lines up with the picture that the Word of God paints for you and about you. See yourself with the answer. See yourself with the answer. You know why people's confession is wrong? Because they got the wrong picture on the inside. You know what the confession of God's Word is, is designed to do? It's designed first and foremost to build the right picture on the inside of your, uh, your spirit. And when I say that, I'm talking literally about your, in your mind and in your soul. Romans chapter 10, verse 8 says, But what saith it, talking about the word of faith, what saith it, the word is nigh thee even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we speak or preach. Paul is saying the word starts off in your mouth and then gets into your heart. It does not start in your heart and then get to your mouth. It starts first and foremost in your mouth. That's how you give attention to the Word of God. That's how you go from being a stony ground or a thorny ground to being good ground. By speaking God's Word, letting it take root in your heart, giving attention to it so that it takes root in your heart so that you maintain the right picture, 
the picture of what the Bible says belongs to you. And then you learn to take captive every thought that contradicts that picture. Every thought and every picture that comes to you that says, no, you can't have it that way. Might work that way for somebody else, but you know you. Those are the thoughts we're supposed to bring into captivity. Those are the thoughts that we're supposed to cast down. The pictures that we're supposed to cast down. Because that is the way, the only way that you can build patience or let patience have a perfect work. The word patience is literally the word constancy. That's the only way that you can constantly see the right picture in the unseen realm. And that's the key to faith victories. That's the key to winning the good fight of faith. See yourself with the answer. See yourself with the answer. Refuse to allow yourself to see anything except seeing yourself with the answer. Well, how are we going to know what the answer is? Folks, we've used this example. I think we used it last Wednesday night. I could describe to you, any one of us could describe to each one of us, anybody else in the room, exactly what our car looks like. And we wouldn't have to know what kind of car you've got. We could go by the description. Never having seen it before, we could find your car. You could describe in such detail that any one of us could find your car in a parking lot full of cars. That's exactly what the Word of God does. It gives details about what belongs to you, even though you may never have seen it with your physical eye. And that's what the devil says. The devil says, oh, you don't think that's really going to come into reality, do you? You don't really think it's going to be like that, do you? Well, only if you keep looking at the unseen things. He wants to get you looking at the seen things. He wants to tell you, well, you know you don't feel any better than you did before you prayed. But what does that have to do with anything? That's like the wind and the waves. What does that have to do with anything? I'm already walking in faith. I'm already doing the supernatural. Even though I can't see any results, I'm already taking steps into the supernatural realm, into the supernatural blessings of God. What difference does the circumstances make? Yeah, but the doctor said this. Well, I'm sure the doctor's doing his best, but what did God say? What's the picture that the Word of God is supposed to paint in you, on the inside of you? What did God describe for you? We need to change our picture of ourselves. Because that's the key to success. And that's what Romans 4.20 uh, is talking about. Where it says, let them, my words, not depart from before your eyes. That literally means see yourself with the answer. It doesn't mean keep your face in a book all day. It means see yourself with the answer. Say the word of God until you build the picture of what the Bible says belongs to you in you. And that's the whole process of casting out imaginations. Notice the Bible says those are spiritual weapons. Your efforts against wrong thinking is a spiritual weapon, and it's mighty through God. It's mighty in the spirit realm. It breaks out, the, breaks through the devil's defenses. He builds strongholds, but you can break through his strongholds by, dis, by uprooting and destroying wrong thoughts that create wrong pictures on the inside of your soul. And that's how you fight the good fight of faith. That's how patience has her perfect work. You come to the place where you grow and develop spiritually to where you're not moved by what you see. You're not moved by what you feel. You stay constant and you continue to look at the word of God no matter what the circumstances say around you, no matter what your feelings are, no matter what anybody else says. You hold fast to what God's word says and look only at the picture that God's word paints. And that's how you fight the good fight of faith. That's how you lay hold on eternal life. You'll win every time that way. 
Are you out there? Well, we'll go further into this next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to be doers of your word. We thank you, Father, for the privilege to walk by faith and not by sight. Thank you, Father, for the pictures, the pictures of success that the Bible paints for us, the pictures of healing and health, of prosperity and blessing. Thank you, Father, that we're the head and not the tail. We're above and not beneath. We're blessed coming in and blessed going out. Thank you, Father, that the resurrection power of Jesus dwells in our spirit. It has recreated our spirits. And because our spirits are housed in this body, our bodies are the temple of our own spirit, Father, we thank you that the life of God, the resurrection life of God permeates every cell and fiber of our being. Not just our spirit, Father, every cell of our body is affected and quickened by the life of God within our hearts. Thank you, Father, that we walk in health, we prosper, everything we put our hand to prospers. We thank you, Father, that we're blessed in every area, blessed above measure. The blessing of Abraham is ours because we're redeemed for the curse of the law. Thank you, Father. These things are true. and We'll hold fast to them and see them as a reality in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.